Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Bronze Body Health and Fitness Podcast. I'm so glad that you're joining us today. Today I'm joined by Dr. Calvin Sun, who worked in seven different emergency rooms across four of the five boroughs of New York City during the COVID-19 pandemic. He actually just wrote a book called The Monsoon Diaries, A Doctor's Journey of Hope and Healing from the ER Frontlines to the Far Reaches of the World, which is coming out tomorrow from when this is released, September 27th, and I highly recommend you check out that book, Great Read. In this podcast, we discuss a lot about Dr. Sun's experience in the ER, but we also work in a little bit of experience and journey that Dr. Sun has had through travel. Dr. Sun has been to over 200 different countries and actually traveled the world while he was in medical school. He's a super impressive individual. I've actually known him for about four or five years now. I connected with him years back during a speech at my college, and I've been a huge fan of him ever since. So I highly recommend you check out his book and all of his work. You can check out the links below to access Dr. Sun's social media pages, book, and so much more. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Dr. Sun, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to have you on today, man. Thanks for having me. It's been four and a half years since we connected back at Lebanon Valley College. So for people who aren't familiar with you and your story and everything that you've been doing, would you mind kind of bringing them up to speed about who you are and all the incredible things that you've been up to? Who am I? I am a witness to someone living through a series of fortunate accidents. I grew up in New York City and uh, had my life pretty much planned out for me by my parents. But what happened was my dad died when I was 19 from a sudden unexpected heart attack. My mom had been diagnosed with Parkinson's around that time. And it all happened that one summer of 2006 where I would label the worst and reframed as the best summer of my life. And what I mean by that is that any of those series of events have been opportunities for me to reframe as a way to live my life with a different focus, clarity, purpose, to, in order to derive resilience of something that I already have experienced and have within me uh, to move forward. And that set up a series of events later on that let me just to go in and run towards the fires without so much of a plan, but just a trusting nature that things are just going to work out to trust the process. And it's been a pattern of just embracing that comfortable chaos, uh, comfortably embracing that chaos, because what happened that summer taught me that you can have everything planned out to the T, create all these contraptions to create what we think is a stable life or a bubble of a stable life, but bubbles are bubbles. They pop easily. And that's the actual truth with a capital T that life is inherently chaos. The universe doesn't care about your plans and you might as well actively accept that, not passively resign yourself to that, babe, but actively accept it so you can actually leave more room and energy to run towards it and decide how you're going to meet those challenges. And that's essentially what happened where I didn't expect to now become a doctor totally by unforeseen accidents and happenstance, losing a bet to myself. Didn't expect to travel as much as I did because I started uh, as a 20 year old hating travel up until I lost a bet that led me to Egypt 36 hours later. 
and even coming to this podcast, being here. Who am I? Just telling, talking about myself where I'm still that young little kid just wondering if I matter and exist. And I still am that person, but just taking things with, you know, gratefully as they come. Right. And as you said, things are chaotic in nature and life. And you literally lost a bet and ended up in Egypt as someone who hated traveling. And ever since you've kind of grown to love traveling, if I remember correctly, I mean, it seems like almost every month you're going to a new country or something, it seems. Yep. That is pretty much what's been happening since June of 2021. I've been in a different country and a different trip every month since then. That's incredible. So out of all the places that you've gone, do you have a personal favorite or a place that you highly recommend that people need to go to? I have a list of superlatives. <laughs> I can't choose favorites among children, but it really depends on where you are in life and what you're looking for and what you are looking for in travel or what space you're in and which lens you want to place travel on. So I, at the time when I hated traveling, as you mentioned, in my 20s, I had decided that traveling wasn't for me and that I didn't have money to travel. Then medical school rolled around and, you know, being $200,000 in debt or even deciding to go to med school, knowing that that was going to be my fate. Why would even travel be on my radar? It wasn't. In fact, I had argued that New York City is my favorite place to travel to. I still would say that to your answer as an answer to your question. I've been around the world. And I'm still living in New York uh, and, I, and I love it. I mean, New York is a place where I feel like there's always an adventure to be explored every day. But the, the reasoning was, what's the point of spending all that money and all that energy visiting places you're not going to live in anyway? Because in a place like New York City, or having access to it, the world comes to New York anyway. So instead of going to a country, just go to a neighborhood. And I stuck to that up until I lost the bet that it ended up in landing me in Egypt, which was my first time ever traveling solo without a plan. And I would say that would be my favorite because it's the first. But is it the region that I go back to over and over and over again? The Middle East, the Levant, and South Asia are the places, that whole region. And South Asia being India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and Nepal is the region I come back to over and over, over again. So by numbers, that would be considered, quote, my favorite. But there's also things like, we're going to the list of superlatives now, most magical, New Zealand, most fun, <laughs> Cuba, the most convenient, if I want to turn my brain off, but still want to have an adventure will be Japan, the best food, Japan, Spain, Iran. I can go on forever. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And as you mentioned, Egypt was kind of when it all got started there. And you said you didn't really have a plan. And well, that's a great anecdote for life. Sometimes things happen and you don't have a plan of what's going to happen. So what did that trip look like? How did you kind of proceed forward and spend your time in another country for the first time ever away from home like that? There's a saying that if you want to make God laugh, tell them your plan. I, at the time, was bartending at Randa Bar in Midtown West after a South Asian culture show. It was like an after party from my undergrad. And they hired me and I was bartending. And I had this one person that didn't quite leave the bar. She kind of stuck around and we chatted a little bit. And one thing led to another where she was telling me about she was going to Egypt with her family. Well, I didn't hear that part. I just heard that she was going to Egypt in about a few days and she encouraged me to come with her and I liked her enough to 
had considered it, but I kept giving that defense and excuse of, you know, I don't have time, I don't have money. I don't want to consider traveling. I'm not much of a traveler. I'm from New York. And then I found out there were two other of my friends. I recalled also saying they were going to eat at the same time. So I had them meet up the next day and we we're all getting along and they now became peer pressure. And the tickets at the time were around 2000, I think round trip, because they were, we were, they were like leaving immediately. And I, you needed an excuse to look cool enough. Uh, and I had told them I'll go if tickets are under $800 round trip as a joke, just to get them to get off my back. The one thing led to another. And then later that night, as we got up to leave, we checked it. It was 2000, checked it at 2000 and then checked it one more time as they were leaving. And it dropped down to $650. Obviously, <laughs> Obviously, that's a great deal. There is some energy behind a manifestation, but it wasn't my doing that it just dropped down to that such a low amount. It's a great deal. But at the same time, I realized, I mean, us being at a bar at 4.30 in the morning kind of helped where in, under the influence, I figured that I'd rather be a man of my word and $650 poor than someone that flakes out on their bets. Uh, or their promises they make to themselves and other people or loved ones. And I knew that if I were to say no, whether sober or not, I would be beginning a habit of saying no and postponing my life. And it would just be easier and easier to make those excuses moving forward. And I didn't want to get on that ladder. I think that says a lot about your own character, one. And two, I think that a lot of people kind of need that advice in life because there's a lot of times where, you know, little things come up, little inconveniences, little hassles, and we do make a little excuse for it, or we come up with a reason not to do something. And instead, you know, whenever you say you did, so you want to do something or you're going to do something, your name is attached to that. So that really has to mean more than anything to you. Now I mentioned, you know, a little bit of things that come up in life can be inconvenient. And I think when everyone thinks inconvenience lately, they probably think back to the COVID pandemic because boy, did that really inconvenience a lot of people. It disrupted a lot of plans as I'm sure it did for someone like you, who's a practicing doctor in New York City, which was kind of one of the big outbreak centers. And I'm sure you had some travel plans that got changed. Everything just got turned upside down in the world for a while. So what was the COVID pandemic like for you who was inside the emergency rooms in New York City, uh, you know, at the heart of the whole thing during the start of the whole outbreak? So what was, you know, March 2020 like for you? The stuff of nightmares. How do you describe <laughs> something so I'm sorry we have to go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> no, I wrote a book about it. It's coming out in two weeks, less than two weeks now. So I... I have any of anything I'm I, I went in it and tried to describe it the best way I could. And it would look like a Jackson Pollock painting, but luckily I'm not a painter. I'm more of a writer. And the book that's coming out in two weeks isn't actually about COVID. COVID is a background character to tell a story about where I derived my resilience from when that happened. It's the answer to your question. What was it like and how did I get through it? And also how to face the unknown. Where did I get all that? And I think a lot of people try to find external experiences and sources to create resilience and to acquire a skill when 
we actually have had it in us all this time and the work should be done internally to find that you've already had it rather than look outside when the, yeah, when the answer's right underneath your nose. And when COVID came around, I didn't want just to write what doctors do. We all know what doctors do. Just pick up any book by written by a doctor. <laughs> what we don't know is how we think. What is going through our minds going into something that is so overwhelming and intimidating, whether it's another day at work, whether it's a collapsing healthcare system that is unsustainable way before a pandemic or a pandemic that rolls around that has no end in sight. And as you had said, travel plans had to be changed. I did not, I definitely did not travel during the pandemic. It was unethical, but by denying myself traveling, I was denying myself a way to fill my cup. Not everyone heals by, you know, just hundred percent of gyms or hundred percent working out, hundred percent talking about hundred percent. It's a mixture of everything. I rode, I like working out, but travel is a big component. And losing that meant that I was now signing up for more work than I usually would, which I didn't expect at the time, but I ended up going in more often than I did. And losing the major component of what was going to keep me afloat and recharge to go back in so often. And that was the expanding di diametrically opposed energies that were forcing each other apart. And I did not know, especially when not knowing when it was going to end, how long this was going to keep up. So that already, without even talking about the virus, but the thought process of going into something that we had no end expiration date and also losing all the avenues that was going to keep us afloat for so long. And that's unforgiving. That's, true un that's truly unsustainable. 100%, man. I completely agree. And as you said, it was a difficult time for everyone, especially you right there on the front line. And it's difficult when something just turns your whole world around and you lose that outlet, you lose the ability to kind of take charge of your time, even I'll say, because I'm guessing you probably spent a lot more time in the emergency room during March, April, May, and so on in 2020 than you were probably initially scheduled for planning on. And you probably faced a lot of shortages at the time. You probably didn't have all the equipment and all of the necessary protective things and all the other tools that you would normally have in your toolbox to handle such a event because, well, we had no idea this was coming. It kind of came unexpectedly and out of nowhere. And as you said, the healthcare system had a lot of challenges and we didn't plan for this. We didn't prep for this. We didn't have things like PPE, for example, that you might've needed to keep yourself safe and keep your patients safe. Yeah. Imagine going in and you're trying, you're preparing for the biggest recital of your life or the biggest boxing match of your life. And you know, it's going to be bad, but then at the last minute, you then realize that you don't know how many rounds they are. You don't know how long you're going to play in this recital. You don't know it, you know, what it, it creating expectations on how much energy you need to go in. And then they tell you, that you're not allowed to wear any protective gear, you ran out, and also they have to tie your hands behind your back, and uh, the, you're not gonna be allowed to drink water or take breaks. And somehow you gotta make it work. And, and you still have to do it, and this is the biggest you know, event of your life that you prepared all your life for, and they said, oh, by the way, no water, no breaks, handicap, tie your hands behind your back, and we're not gonna tell you how long it's gonna end. Oh, and we don't know what we're up against either. Because and we have no idea. And you might not live. And you, you, you might, you don't know if you're going to come back home. And they tell you all this last minute. We did not know this 
you know, going day by day that it was going to last for so long. We had thought it was going to be all over by the fall, not knowing it was going to have waves of different variants. And that's unforgiving. And now here we are in 2022. And just a week or two ago, I got an alert on my phone down here in Maryland that the local county was 3% higher in um, positive test rate than the rest of the state. Um, so there was different things coming out about different precautions and different things. And, you know, I completely understand that people probably get sick and tired of hearing about COVID, but it's one of those things that it doesn't seem to be going away even two years later now. I don't think it's going to ever go away. Nothing really ever goes away. And I write this in my book that this is why it's not a COVID book. It's a book about resilience and how to overcome things that happened in the past. I use COVID as a way to connect all of us because that's something that we've all experienced together as an entire generation. A whole population has affected you. But it also speaks to how I overcome and have dealt with my father's death and my travels. One is a little more positive traveling and did all the adventures I've had. But those are all the kind of experiences that I went in without a plan as well. The Egypt story, the, the all my trips that I do, I go on pretty ad hoc without much, so much of a plan. And it's a positive way of handling things, running towards the fire. But it is something that can be stressful. And it's a way of reframing things. When things are well, I still make a habit out of make, uh, being comfortable with the uncomfortable. And then there's my father's death, a discrete event in my life that I will never be able to change. And as you said about COVID, it's never going to go away. And a lot of people are fatigued by that. They just want to move on and look, you know, look away and forget about it. But you really, is that really the right answer in overcoming anything in your life? Just to ignore it, repress it, it's going to come out eventually. And usually if you do that long enough, at a really inconvenient, most inconvenient time, the midlife crises, you know, we just pick up and leave, you burn out, you want to be, if at the very least, try to be in control. When that happens, you are in control of the spigot that allows the flood when you want to, when you, you control that chaos. And that autonomy is so important. And what, the, what my book tries to talk about is my father's death, COVID, a pandemic, they're never going to leave you. And you think because they're never going to leave you, nothing's going to change. And that's not true. It's really, if you revisit it, if you have the fortitude to come back and revisit these things and open and allow yourself to sit with these feelings, you realize your attitudes to those very same discrete events that you feel unchanged, your attitudes will change. Your attitudes about those things will change. And that's what defines a person. And then you will look back one day and say, wow, this wasn't a thing that I had to overcome and ignore. This is the thing that invited me an opportunity to look forward to the rest of my life, to live it with more clarity and purpose. Right, right. We all have these past events that can be traumatic or mentally or emotionally scarring, I'll say. And I think a lot of people forget that those obstacles that were once standing in your way can actually become the path forward for the rest of your life. So instead of using things that have happened in your life and saying, why me? Maybe instead you say, try me. Or maybe you go in with an open mind, as you've mentioned in the past, uh, you go in with an open mind and you start to kind of see the potential for what things could be. And you start to look around and see things from a different point of view or a different perspective. Right. So I think, you know, as we're talking about everything here from travel all the way to COVID, like you can go in with such a closed mind and say, OK, I don't want to travel abroad. COVID is over. 
And then you can go in and just start to expand your horizons a little bit. And maybe you try traveling and you love it. And next thing you know, you're like Dr. Sun, you end up in 200 different countries. And same thing with COVID, same thing with anything in your life. Just because, you know, you might have this closed mind thought of it and say, this is the way it is, period. Maybe if you try the other side, you'll start to see that maybe there's a little bit more to it because, you know, you can't ever really get the full story of something unless you live it and experience it, unfortunately. Yeah, you're like a little kid and you touch a burner and that hurt. And then you you touch it again, it hurt again. <laughs> you know, you could be the most brave kid and you'll be like, I I, I hate burners. You, you, become, you develop a trauma and fear of burners. But we then use burner. I mean, maybe you can reframe it as like, oh, we use a burner to cook food. It makes food delicious. I don't want to eat raw food and cold food for the rest of my life. And the, it's just, the burner didn't change. It can hurt you. It may hurt you accidentally. You can either choose to never use a burner again and never cook your food or choose to reframe it, which we most of us have done. No matter how much we've been hurt by things in our past, there are a lot of things we've already reframed and used to our advantage, like touching a burner, getting hurt, but then using it again to cook great food. And that's what we talk about in resilience is that we always try to look for it as something outside of us when it's already what we have within. Working out, same idea. The muscles didn't come from outside. The, the, it, the, the strength doesn't come from outside. It comes from within. The nerves that create muscle growth comes from within. I mean, you do have to eat. You do have to have food. You do have to have an environment that allows you to work out, but that's what we do when we travel or put ourselves in situations that challenge us. Now, COVID was not the challenge and adventure I signed up for, but I couldn't change that. That, that was going to be inevitable. It was going to happen to all of us. So I might as well harness on the things that I learned in the past from my travels or my father's death to reframe it as a way to learn and grow from if I were to survive it at the very least. So I wrote you right. know, I wrote it the way as I did when I traveled as a travel blogger. I couldn't travel anymore, but I might as well continue the habit of writing about it when I couldn't travel. And that was during lockdown and during the pandemic. As you speak of resilience, I can't think but how humble you are because you haven't made a plug for yourself yet. So I'm going to do it for you. <laughs> in your book, you share a uh, little story in there about when you're treating a nurse who had COVID and her oxygen levels. I think she saw them or they were reported to her or something, and she has to be intubated. And I think it was a couple days later, she ended up passing away. And, you know, this was someone in the healthcare field, just like you, and you still had to go to work after losing someone that you knew. So how were you able to continue to be resilient and persevere and continue to show up after you literally just lost someone that was right there on the front line next to you? So I didn't know this at the time, but now looking back, I can put it better to words. And it was that I created a habit by then of staying with my feelings. And a lot of people feel that when something bad happens, it's inconvenient. Usually it happens at an inconvenient time. Nobody ever was like, I'm ready to feel terrible. But they postpone it for another time. Like I'll dwell and grieve when it's appropriate to do so. And sometimes that's the case. But I made a habit to, in the moment, just let it pass through you, let sit with it, hug it if you have to, to the point it's kind of pushing you away. <laughs> and just label it if you have to. At the time I was writing about it, I wasn't quite like, oh, this is, I must sit with my feelings. At the time I was like, woof, I felt it. And the action was, I'm not going to try to run away from it. I'm just going to step outside and let it 
let I let me and myself feel it, write about it. Some people post it on social media. Some people write it in their private diaries. Whatever the means is, honor the moment because you're never going to have that moment again. It's never going to feel as real as that very moment. Because when we try to postpone it and try to revisit it again, your memory may change things. Your attitudes may change things. And you might as well just do it when it's the feeling the most authentic, if it's as convenient for you to do so. And when the nurse asked to be intubated because her oxygen levels are so low, at the time, I was considering not to intubate unless they physically and appearance-wise and clinically could not breathe rather than just a number on a screen because she otherwise looked great. And we knew about silent hypoxia, and, but there were many ways of treating it without having to put you in a medically induced coma and putting a tube down your throat and, you know, which was, can create harm. I mean, it's called invasive ventilation. We do it in an emergency room if there's no other choice, but we had plenty of choices of giving you supplemental oxygen to bring it up without the need to put you into medically induced coma. So we gave her all those options, but I think her being a clinician and a nurse, it was something she knew about. Intubation was something fami more familiar to her. And that's why she chose it. And the helplessness in all of us was not being sure if that was the right decision. But at the time, there was so much chaos going on. It wasn't like she was our only patient, but we had to honor her wishes. And you know, she had she seemed that she had capacity and we weren't sure if that was the right decision. And we have to work with the patient. We can't force them to do things they don't want if they had the capacity. And even at her oxygen level being so low, she was so clear-headed and she knew the risks, the benefits, the alternatives, and she explained it. And since it was so low, we felt that we didn't, how, do, how would we know what the right thing to do for COVID was at the time? It was so early. And therefore, it was up in the air. And that's the moral injury that we struggle with to this day. Could we have changed things? Could we have done things differently? And this is even me sitting with my feelings, talking to you about it, and letting it come through, through this podcast. What you're listening to is an example of me not trying to look away or trying to reframe it or try to redefine it, but just saying it as it is and as had written it and realize my attitudes towards it have evolved so much over time, but not the facts of what happened. Yeah, you can't change what has happened to you, but you can change who you choose to become as a result of your past experiences. Now, looking back, is there any advice or anything that you would do differently or any advice that you would give to your you know, 2020 version of yourself based on what you know now. And I know hindsight's always 2020 because, may, pun intended, because COVID 2020, get it? No, nothing, because I realized I didn't know jack shit. <laughs> and none of us did. I, I wrote in the book that if anyone can tell you what the right thing to do, they're either a liar or time traveler from the future. And I was neither. All I had was things that I've experienced in the past and everything the past had taught me to, got, to get me to that point to be prepared as much as I could be for that moment was you don't know anything, but you gotten to where you are already. You're still alive. You're still breathing and you, you're not doing too bad. So trust yourself, trust the process, go with the river, go with the flow. And really you can't look left or right to Wikipedia or Google because they don't know either. This is all as a human race, something that we've never experienced before. So you know better than anyone else. You, you know, you, no one's looking over your shoulder. And you know, it, it, on a lighter note, it goes back to my traveling experience with Egypt. When I lost the bet, I really could tell you that I did not like to travel. That's what I thought. 
And it's ironic that after three weeks alone in Egypt, being dragged kicking and screaming, well, I spent two days with her and my friends, but then they had to leave early. Then I spent the next three, two and a half weeks alone. And I had to be dragged kicking and screaming because every waking moment the first week in this uh, first half of the second week, I was trying to change my flight and go back home. And every time I did that, I also wrestled with, well, you're here. Why not make the most out of it? Are you going to create a habit of always dipping out early when you're already there, when, the, when you're in the middle of the challenge? And I didn't want to do that, but it still was horrible because the first minute, the first from the first minute all the way to the second half of the trip, I was like, I'm going to die. 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 I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. I hate why do people like traveling? It wasn't until three weeks in when I came back and I was like, oh, shoot, this is why people love traveling. It took me three weeks being dragged, kicking and screaming to like something that most people were born loving. Yep. It's, it's ironic now that I lead these trips around the world every month for all these people who look to me to plan all these things. And they tell me they always love traveling. There was never their Egypt story where they had to turn around and like, oh, this is what the value of traveling was. And I am so fascinated by them. How do you do it? Why do you even need me? You should know my story. And it's ironic that you're looking to me. And that's when I realized that I didn't know anything at the time. I have to just go through it. And then my attitudes towards that very thing that I thought I hated, travel didn't change. My attitudes towards travel changed. Something I hated, I ended up loving in a very tough love kind of sense. I'm still on that airplane going, oh, another trip. But I feel the same way about being that feeling as this like, man, you sh- you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be grateful. It's like brushing your teeth. Oh, I got to brush my teeth. It's four o'clock in the morning. I got like, can I just go to bed without brushing my teeth? And you find yourself brushing your teeth. And over time, it adds up and you realize, well, thank God I, you know, I brushed my teeth every day. I still have my teeth or I ate my vegetables every day. Even if you don't like it, it becomes that good habit, that positive feedback. And also, finally, what I realized also from that experience was that first week and a half in Egypt, I didn't like it, not because I didn't like travel. It was because I didn't like myself. The reason being is that in a country where you don't speak the language, you don't know anyone, nobody knows you, you're completely alone. You don't even understand the billboards or the language of the billboards. You can't talk to anything or anyone. Then the only person you can talk to is yourself and you don't like that experience. It's not the country. It's not the environment around you. You're in an environment where it feels like a, a house of mirrors all pointing in different perspectives of you and you're looking at all these mirrors. And if you don't like it, that means you don't like the reflection that you're seeing of yourself in that different environment. You have no one else to rely on other than yourself and the kindness of strangers. And it wasn't until three weeks when I came back and I said, like, oh, I loved it. I, I, this is why people love traveling so much. It was because after three weeks of surviving it, I was like, oh, it was you. <laughs> you and the kindness of strangers. You have more faith in humanity because of this kindness of others, but also faith in yourself because you didn't have to rely on anyone but your own faculties and you know the, the, the lonely meals you had to yourself and figuring things out on your own. And that was the beginning of the process of building and rebuilding my character and how I perceived myself. So when it came to the pandemic or any trauma that we go through, that's also a foreign environment. You don't know anyone. You don't know what to do. You have a team that also doesn't know what to do. It's a foreign world. You don't speak the language of COVID because it's a new virus and you're just getting by. But at that point, I was so comfortable being uncomfortable that I just went in it. I was still uncomfortable. Don't get me wrong. I was just more comfortable with feeling that extreme discomfort. I was going to say, as you were talking in my head, I was going through all the different parallels between your story in Egypt and the start of the COVID pandemic, because I'm guessing when it first started, you were again, probably like, all right, when is this going to end? How can we get out of here? And then next thing you know, 
you start to, as you said, start to recognize the generosity of people, right? So individuals you've never met donating protective equipment and other things to doctors like you to continue doing the things that you do. And while it can be difficult and trying at times, you recognized that your own ability to serve your patients was well worth it. And even if you could just make a positive impact on one person a day, then all the other, you know, long hours, late nights, early mornings, all the time spent trying to read and keep up to date with everything because information was constantly changing. All of that was worth it as long as you could have that positive impact. And then you started to notice that reflection on yourself, because as you said, you were kind of alone, both in Egypt, and I'd say to a certain extent in the COVID pandemic, you had a team of doctors around you, but I'm sure that you all probably felt a little bit individualized or isolated at times during that pandemic. Like, what am I going to be doing? Or as you said, I don't know anything right now, like all this preparation for not feeling 100% confident with what I'm doing. Everyone was feeling that they were going through their own personal narratives of their families. They had to return home to the, peop the people they love. They were they're going to expose the virus. They had their own issues. They had their own traumas to contend with when going through something that we were all supposed to be working together on. But it soon becomes a siloed experience when they go to the same hospital every day and they have a lack of PPE. It's not hard to fathom someone wondering, well, if I had signed a contract with this hospital, I wonder what the other hospital that's private and maybe I would be more protected. Maybe I wouldn't have given someone at home COVID it had, had I worked at this place. And they start blaming themselves. Well, they start blaming Actually, they start blaming themselves because they have no one to blame. You can't blame a virus. The virus doesn't care. You're gonna, you can't blame your colleagues who don't know anything as much as you do. You feel guilty doing that. So what's, what's convenient and what's sometimes for many people a habit to blame when you have no one else to you know, castigate? And that's sometimes yourself. And that's the danger. That's the more injury that we're so habituated to, especially as healthcare workers. We are led to put our patients above ourselves, to always advocate for others than ourselves. And yes, it's very fulfilling when you had said that if you impact one life, you can go to bed more fulfilled that you made a difference. And it all does add up. Absolutely. But you can't appreciate that as much. You don't even, your, your brain is so fogged up from even appreciating that sense of gratitude for helping someone else. If you are so worried about filling your own cup that you're hating yourself or that you made a, may have made the wrong decision uh, whether it's now or back then, or that you may hurt your loved ones at home and all this, these distractions then prevent you from seeing what's good out there. Especially there's so many other patients who didn't make it and you tend to blame yourself for them without seeing all the patients you did save because we always tend to just run towards what feels like something that we need to take responsibility for in a negative way. Yeah, yeah. And, and as you just mentioned, we always assume the negative instead of focusing on the positive, right? So say something bad happened in one incident, but the learning experience that that provided for you allowed you, allowed you to have a more positive impact on dozens of other people, hundreds of other people because of one learning experience. And I think a lot of people in life are unwilling to accept when they fail at something, you know, and I'm personally one of those people that had to struggle with that myself. When I got into uh, school for my doctorate degree, I failed, I think it was the first or second exam. 
in two different classes. And I was like, well, this is it. I suck. I suck at school. I can't pass, you know, this one exam. It was multiple choice, open-ended questions, all that sort of thing. So therefore I failed. But then you look at how I performed the rest of my time in school and how I did. And I was able to balance that with running a business and starting a podcast. And it's like, well, maybe I'm not such a failure. Maybe I just needed to reframe my thinking and change my habits. And I would say the same thing for you. I think I remember you sharing in the past that, you know, school was one of those things that there was ups and downs. And yet you're easily one of the most successful doctors and physicians that I've known, talked with and have the pleasure of having on my podcast thus far. Thank you. I, I, I was being a labeling what success success <laughs> me has been asked. And it depends on who's asking what it means to someone. But I would find it very ironic to say that I could be labeled as a successful doctor. I mean, I never signed a full-time contract anywhere. <laughs> when I graduated residency, I was per diem at different hospitals, filling all these paperwork just to be credentialed so I can access different hospitals, so I can control my schedule. But that one wouldn't call that successful because it's unstable. You, you may not have any jobs because they all dry up, which actually did happen around May of 2020. And you know, you, you, you're not guaranteed shifts or benefits. But I chose that because I felt that success was more autonomy than the amount of money you make or the stable income that you make. And that was a gamble. And a lot of people to this day say, well, I wouldn't consider that successful because how is he going to feed a family if he doesn't know what, you know, when he's working the next day or the next two weeks? It's, but then I respond and rebut. I was like, well, even with the full-time doctors who had to get furloughed because of a pandemic or even before a pandemic was a challenge. So we, we don't even know what cons is considered successful. What I think is, is how do you get by when anything comes your way? It goes back to what we discussed before, when you fail a test, what's your attitude towards it? And it's okay to sit with feelings because my attitude, like you, was if I fail the test, it was my fault. But if I ace a test and do well in the rest of the year, it's unlucky. <laughs> and that's the imposter syndrome. Even though you have a sample size of 40 good things and, a, and, and an N of equals one of a one bad thing, you take responsibility for the bad thing and ignore all the good things thinking, counting that as luck. And that's a normal, I want to normalize that imposter syndrome feeling. We all feel it. I still feel it. And by me not taking any jobs and full-time contracts was a way of me taking control, uh, a little more control of my feelings towards how I work. So if I was to go in a shift, if I were to pick up shifts or go left and right and go uptown, upstate or travel or whatever, that's all I have no one else to blame or be grateful for other than myself. Right. I'm the one who chose to go in and therefore I'm the one who chooses to make that income for that day. And if I don't have any shifts, I'm no one else to blame. Uh, not even myself, because that's the fact of the, the, the world is there's not enough jobs and I, I can't control that. And that was a lot easier for me to stomach. And that's the way I chose to live my life and the perspective I had. And it's just somehow ironically without me, my expecting to that when the pandemic came around, I was able to work in many different hospitals. I wasn't siloed to one place. So I had a much big picture, much of, of a larger big picture view of what was going around around the city. So I didn't have to feel like, oh, I picked the wrong place. Whereas imagine we go back to the example of the full-time doctor who picked one place. They don't know what's mm -hmm. down the street. They never, never worked there before. So they think that everything is better than what they're going through right now, especially during a shit show like a pandemic. 
But because I was jumping from different places to place and had that perspective, I was like, okay, there's no hospital that has it together. And therefore it's none of our faults. I didn't make any wrong decision. They all don't have PPE. They're all lacking something and they're all overwhelmed, private versus public. I don't feel, ironically, I feel hopeless, but I don't feel as bad that I'm blaming myself for making, quote unquote, the wrong personal decision. I mean, success is so variable in how one person defines it to the next. And I think that success itself has to be individualized to you. You can't just say, you know, success is making a certain amount of money every year because, you know, say your definition of success is making $70,000 a year. Well, if you're in small town, Pennsylvania, that's a pretty good salary. But if you're in San Francisco or New York City, 70000 probably isn't even enough to get by and break even in most cases. But we're, so, we're, yeah, we're, but it's, it's a habit because yeah. you had said that when you failed to test, you felt bad. When we failed any test, we felt bad. We were attaching ourselves to a number. You got a 70%. Well, mm-hmm. for some people, 70% is like, you passed. Yeah. And it's not for others, 70% is like, I'm a failure. Don't be enslaved by numbers. Yeah, 100%. And find your own definition of success and find a way to make it happen. So for you, travel was a super important part of your life. And I would say that you've been successful in balancing your work as a doctor with balancing all the trips and travel that you are able to do every single month. And I don't think there's a whole lot of medical doctors that travel nearly as much as you do. They would they would rebut though that travel is what, as successful as that sounds, travel is what almost got me to fail out of medical school like three times <laughs> and fail out of residency like once or kicked out of residency once because it made me, it, 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 that lifestyle was so unorthodox that I was perceived as unsuccessful, distracted, cavalier and unfocused and didn't care about being a doctor. And I wasn't defend, being defensive at the time when that was posed to me. I honestly was, always telling the truth like as it was like the movie office space i don't know i i became a doctor because i lost a wager saying that i would apply to every single medical school hoping that i would at least know because going back i didn't know what i wanted to do i was a bartender and i didn't know if i wanted to be a doctor because my dad wanted to be a doctor and now that he's gone I'm, am i still signing up for it because i'm feeling guilty or me deciding not to become a doctor and living for myself I was happy. Even in the happiness, I was wondering, well, what if I'm actually deciding not to become one because of him? Then is that true success that you're not doing something because of someone else? They still control you. They still control your narrative in some sense. But both of them seemed awful and wrong decisions and both right decisions. It's like the poison cup scene from Princess Bride. They're both laced with poison. But you, stasis is not the answer. You know, Staying with the feelings, letting things unfold which will happen with, with Egypt. Like I let that happen. And that inspired me. It was like, you know, I didn't know I liked, would like traveling until three weeks of it. How do I know if I would like medical school unless I try and then I'll apply everywhere. I didn't take a post back with my poor grades. I didn't retake the MCATs with my average score, but I had the other stuff. And I was like, you know what, if I don't get in anywhere, I could check that box off and be done with it. Fail everything, have my failure story, my Oprah story. And then say, I became a travel blogger. And then <laughs> that honesty is what got me into a, med school is like, well, you're so candid and different. We want to take a chance on you. And they gave me the admission spot, which I'm totally at the time shocked, (laughs) super grateful. I knew that people would kill for that opportunity. So I didn't want to squander that. At the same time, I wasn't sure, especially when they told me, oh, by the way, you are the imposter. We're taking a chance on you. (laughs) Imagine just have someone with that imposter syndrome and then being confirmed and then keep doing that. 
it's hoping that, okay, I will not give up traveling or the other things. And then maybe I'll just fail out, check that box off. No, I'm never meant to be a doctor because I tried and have my Oprah story and to become a travel blogger. <laughs> and that didn't happen. Well, I almost happened two to three times, but every time it happened, I was ready to leave and they will pull me back in and say, well, you won't get into residency, but we'll try to graduate you because you failed with a 67.56, but we can round it up to a 68 because you're so close because it technically is math. I was class president at the time, so I was doing a lot for the school. So there was, you know, this, this feeling of what is going on? You, you don't know unless it happens. Just let, just ride the ride. But that is far from a successful medical student. That, <laughs> well, again, that traveling it's was not far helping from the, It's far from the traditional definition of success. But when you take the definition of success and individualize it and make it your own, then, hey, you yourself might have been successful in your own mind even though other people might not have agreed with it. And that's okay to live a life that other people don't always agree with because everyone's got an opinion and whether that's about COVID, about traveling, about whatever, everyone's got an opinion. Don't yeah. let your life become someone else's opinion. And, and that's the big lesson is that when you're going through something in the moment and you have doubts, you, you may change your mind about those doubts later on. So at the time I was like, wow, traveling is really getting me screwed over. But I still stuck to it because I, I was like, I know traveling is going to be good for me on the long run. I had this feeling it was like, I'm trusting my gut here and I may not become a doctor. I might regret it. But at the moment, I'm just going to stay with the feelings and just go with it. Because I, there was one thing I knew for sure. Traveling was helpful in med school. I wasn't so sure about. And that didn't make sense looking forward. And that's what Steve Jobs had said in his quote, you know, that you can't connect the dots looking forward. You if anyone told you the answer of what your life is going to look like, would it be still fun, worth and enjoyable living? If you just knew all the twists and turns of a roller coaster that's coming up ahead, do you think that like there's going to be four loops, three turns and two G, 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 G drops and all that stuff. The roller coaster is not going to be as fun. Why don't you just enjoy the roller coaster right as it's happening? And then it makes sense when you look back, I can now say, looking back, individualize. Yes, it worked out. Thankfully, if it weren't for traveling, I probably would have actually eventually dropped out of med school more likely, ironically, because I would have burnt out. I would have been unhappy. I would have felt like I sacrificed a huge chunk of myself to be a good doctor and trying to relearn how to be a good person again, rather than stay a good person and learn how to be a good doctor, which is way more sustainable. You end up with the same person, but how the how of it all, the story, how you got there is what you need to be grateful for. And it was med school that lit a fire into my ass to travel so much. If I had dropped out of med school, I probably wouldn't have the motivation to travel so often. I'd be like, yeah, I'll just do it next month. I'll do it the month after. No, med school was so stressful that I needed the equal amount of dumping that stress in that energy level. And that would be in a, a crazy international venture for three days on a weekend. You know, it's just, you know, all those little things add up like yoga, meditation, talking about it, writing about it, therapy and all that stuff. But I, I needed something as dramatic for med school because it was that tough. Right, right. As a, in my opinion, a great point to start to wrap up on. Dr. Sun, do you have any other kind of closing thoughts or closing remarks? Or can we take a little time to talk more about your book and kind of close out with a little shameless plug for that? It comes up September 27th. Tuesday, wherever books are sold, it is being published by HarperCollins, a traditional publisher. So it's pretty much everywhere, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. If you're more independent bookstores, please support IndieBound, Books A Million, Bookshop.org. 
I didn't know Amazon. Uh, I didn't know that outside of Amazon, Walmart and Target sells books. So it's there too. Awesome. And it is a culmination of 17 years of writing that we collated into this book. And I did not expect this book to happen. I was approached two years ago by a literary agent and then another one, both who encouraged me to write a book of all the things I've already written as I was traveling, my father's death and the pandemic. And we've just put it together into what is going to come out on September 27th. And it's need to be, the point needs to be made. COVID is the background character and vehicle that we all can use to, as a means to, to be able to relate to by an entire generation, the population of this planet to hold on to, to be able to understand the other narratives of grief and loss of losing a loved one, like my father or traveling like on all my trips and to see that it can get you to that point that if the God forbid the day that comes when you lose a loved ones, this is hopefully something that you can use to guide you through that process through that grief responsibly and thoroughly instead of trying to ignore it. Or if you were to be interested in traveling and do a different kind of stressful, a more positive kind of stress leads you to a, a space where it can encourage you to get outside of your current environments and get away. You don't have to do international trips. I mean, you don't have to come on my trips, which is open, but uh, to inspire you to step away from the painting. When you all, you've been entire, living your entire life looking at brushstrokes and the little nuances of a painting and not realizing that it's much more beautiful sometimes to actually step away from it all physically, see the painting from afar so that you know what you're actually in and appreciating that before going back to your home and you know how crucial that is in order to live your life that's I, full of chaos. I love that. And I'm super excited to finish the book and I'll be sharing my thoughts on it on our social media platforms and on a future podcast episode. Maybe even I'll tuck it in on the end of this one when we release this one here in the near future. Um, and then we'll link to the links below in the description. So if you didn't quite catch all the different places, you can buy the book, you can just click there and order it online. Dr. Sun, for people who want to find out more about you, are you on Twitter, or Instagram, or you seem like a TikTok guy every now and then too? Oh, I'm trying, but <laughs> I think I've aged out of that. Um, the Pogs, Power Rangers generation. <laughs> One behind Pokemon, I guess. I know nothing about that. But i that means that Facebook, Instagram is my two larger platforms that I am on. Instagram is instagram.com slash monsoon diaries is my handle. M-O-N-S-O-O-N-D-I-A-R-I-E-S. Like monsoon wedding, motorcycle diaries. Uh, that goes with Twitter as well. And Facebook so Facebook is Monsoon Diaries, Twitter is Monsoon Diaries, monsoondiaries.com. If that's too hard to spell for some of you, my name, Calvin, like Calvin Klein, Calvin D. Sun, S-U-N.com will take you there as well. I'll be linking to all of that below as well. So if you didn't quite catch it, you can literally just click the link and we TikTok can't as well. it I'm anymore. I'm just so. starting my TikTok. So TikTok, Monsoon Diaries, but we'll, we'll see how that flies. <laughs> awesome awesome dr sun really appreciate your time it was great having you on today thank you for having me it's good to be back and speaking with you again thank you so much for listening to this episode of the broad body health and fitness podcast 
If you've liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.